Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Hey, it's Guy here, and you're listening to an audio broadcast of Market Call. That's MKT Call. It's a video series I do with Dan Nathan every Monday through Thursday, live at 1 p.m. Eastern. We break down the big market-moving headlines and offer trade ideas. Each week, we are joined by Carter Worth of Worth Charting and Liz Young from SoFi for their investment analysis. So check it out. And if you like it, follow at Market Call on Twitter and subscribe to Risk Reversal Media on YouTube so you never miss an episode. OMG, peeps. Swizzle here. It is, I think it's Tuesday, June 28th. I am all geeked up on the Mountain Dew uh, Market Call, joined by Dan Nathan. Just me and Dan, just the two of us for you singer-songwriters out there. Today's Market Call brought to you by CME Group, Dan, where risk meets opportunity. We are powered by Open Exchange. And yes, I am geeked up because the reversal we saw today, almost a 100-point peak to trough decline in the S&P is remarkable. What's even more remarkable is nobody seems to care. How are you, Dan? I'm doing okay, guy. Um, you know, <clears throat> you seem to care. I seem to care. I care. I, I always find days like this where we kind of been lulled into a little bit of a thought that we're going to keep moving higher, you know, based on an oversold condition. Sentiment was really bearish, you know. And I think we hit this yesterday with Carter, and I definitely got some questions on this. Wait, did you guys change your mind on the rally or this and that or whatever? I mean, I think that you guys were spot on by saying after that Fed meeting, right, and we had the presser, that we we're likely to see a bit of a relief. I mean, listen, calling a point on a market, you know, where it can go to is is a, a bit of a fool's errand. Who knows how that's going to happen here? But yesterday, I think both of you guys were like, oh, Okay, well, we did what we needed to do. Seems like it's drawn a lot of other people into the pool. And now, who knows, right? I mean, yeah. is that where your head is at a little bit here, guys? Well, I want to be clear. I mean, it was just so it's just just to sort of put this, contextualize it, and sort of get a little granular. It was June 14th, that day of the Fed meeting. Obviously, yeah. Jerome Powell spoke that day. Market was on its heels. He spoke. The Dow rallied some 500 points, came off, rallied uh, to close the day. Closed up. Next day was a disaster of a day, I think, in large part due to the fact that the Swiss National Bank came out with a surprise rate hike of 50 basis points. I think that caught a lot of people, myself included, off guard. Friday was benign. Monday was a holiday. And we actually have been starting a rally since that point. Um, I thought, still do, although today has me a little scared, I thought we'd get to 4,100 on an overshoot into mid to late July, as I've said, but things are happening a lot quicker right now. So am I trying to be too cute? Maybe too tactical, maybe, but I'm going to sort of stick to my guns. But again, today's a really strange day, one worth watching very closely given the price action we're seeing. Hey, listen, you know, Guy, um, as a trader, as somebody who stares at his fax set machine all day long and talks about it on podcasts and on market call and on fast, that, that is you. 
Um, you do reserve the right to change your mind, to be nuanced. You also tweet about the markets. You're a great follow on Twitter. People follow Guy at Guy Adami. You must have been an early adopter because you got that handle at Guy Adami before all of the other Guy Adamis signed up for Twitter. That's pretty impressive on your part. I, I guess. I think it was in um, early 08. Or, or when, did, when did the Twitter start? Whenever it was. I think Probably. it was 08, yeah. 09, whatever. Start- I was, yes, an early adopter. And if... I like to think I do a decent job. My counterpunch game on Twitter is legendary, by the way. People legendary. try to take me on, and they just sort of – they don't even hey, realize wait, they're getting smoked. Quick question. Have you ever met another guy, Dami, in, in this world, on this planet? No. Well, other than my old man and my son, I think yeah. we're the only ones that exist, as far as right. I know. Well, 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 listen, you got it before Junior, which is a good good thing. I, I'll give you no, that. You know All what's right. funny, and I know we got to talk about the markets, but, yeah, you know – he he sort of giggles. He's like, when you croak, I'm just going to take over your Twitter account and have this embedded, um, you know, platform. I'm like, that's great. I appreciate that. Right. Anyway, well, listen, I'll, I'll be sure to, to slide into his DMs when that happens here, guy. I mean, all right, let's talk about, you know, one of the reasons why the market might have turned today here. We're seeing U.S. consumer confidence, um, you know, at 16 month lows. Again, this is not that surprising. We've been talking about a negative wealth effect that comes from uh, obviously the stock market, crypto markets. We're seeing housing starting to turn a little bit. And then obviously on the flip side of that inflation, we've been talking about gas at the pump. We've been talking about food inflation. It really is eating into people's disposable income. So not a big surprise. I thought this headline was kind of interesting. And I think you might have um, some thoughts on this because there's a lot of different companies in a lot of different areas in finance that have moved into consumer facing sort of things. This headline from Goldman Sachs that they're pushing a consumer um, could exceed a loss of 1.2 billion this year. Again, these are not exactly related, but it does show you how large parts of the economy want to be focused on the uh, consumer. You've said it for years and years. When you have a consumer um, that makes up more than 70% of our GDP, you know, if you're in business, you got to focus on them to some degree. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, so we'll take it one by one. I mean, in terms of consumer confidence, the, the problem with this is, and, and maybe I'll be wrong, I'm wrong all the time, as I say, but I don't know what's going to change this, Dan. In other words, this trajectory seems to be almost a foregone conclusion that it's going to continue through the summer into the midterm elections. I just don't see these numbers getting any better outside of potentially peace breaking out between Russia and Ukraine. And maybe there's some who knows, but I just don't see that getting better. With that said, that's not particularly bullish for the market. And then this Goldman Sachs scenes loss from their consumer business. I mean, again, this is this is directed at Goldman Sachs. I never really thought they should have forayed into that. I think it sort of got away from their brand. They call that style drift. It worked for a while and it works until it doesn't. And now internally you have people starting to question that. Look, it's not a huge drag, I think, in terms of the stock, but it's just something to watch for because as more and more of these companies try to find different revenue streams, a lot of times they get away from their core competency. Yeah, and I, I think that is the main point, why we kind of lump those two um, headlines together is that I think, you know, what Buffett used to say, or probably still does say, but when the tide goes out, you see who's uh, swimming naked. And, and you know, we're starting to see Amazon is a great example. You know, it's down 35% on the year versus Microsoft, Apple, and Google, all down about 21%. And I think the story of Amazon is that they benefited from the pull forward during the pandemic, but mm-hmm. they really overspent and they went into some areas, whether it be logistics last mile, 
style, all this sort of stuff. Now, they might reap some rewards later on down the road. But right now, as the tide's going out, those sorts of near-term losses are the things that will weigh on valuation. So that could be one of the stories here. Guy, let's look at the S&P, though. You mentioned that June um, 14th date, that reversal that we had after the Fed meeting. Here's the S&P futures here. This is a 10-day chart. You see that it tried to put in a bottom in the days after that really nasty day on the 16th or so. And here we are. We're kind of threatening that uptrend that's been in place since the 22nd here. Again, you know, you were calling for 4,100 guy. We practically got to 4,000, not the end of the world. What would make you kind of take another look at this? And I just want to throw up a chart from the start of 2020, because I think this downtrend, you know, over the course of this year, this is the one to really focus on. And I think your focus was, okay, we get back up towards maybe mildly overshoot that downtrend channel that's been in place for six months. Yeah, that's exa- you're, you're spot on. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. So I'll answer your first question first. That was what will happen? What will you need to see in order for you to change your mind? And I got to tell you something, a day like today where you see such a dramatic change, this reversal, you know, off a recent high is really important. We'll see, starting to see decent volumes out there. You're starting to see these, you know, high flying tech names take it on the chin. That's problematic. Seeing energy back on all these things are somewhat concerning because all these things were in place that took us down that first leg into June 14th. So that's clearly a consideration. The one thing that I continue to watch extraordinarily closely is credit in the form of HYG. If that were to start to roll over, if that were to get below sort of 72 and a half, that would absolutely get me thinking that maybe I missed it by 100 or 150 or so S&P points. So I'm watching it without question. I still think this though, Dan, and you know we're going to see if I'm right or wrong, into quarter end, which, by the way, is this week, and then subsequently a holiday shortened week. Those are typically uh, areas of time where the market just sort of levitates higher. The fact that we're not seeing it today is absolutely concerning, but I'm not ready to call it. Um, I'm not ready to call it quits just yet. Yeah. Well, listen, I'll just say this, you know, when we're talking about trading fast markets and these have been volatile markets for the better part of this year here. One of the reasons on Tuesdays we focus on futures markets here is that it's a really good way to set stops here. Right. So like the idea is if you have a bullish bent, you express a view in the S&P futures and you think we're going to go to forty one hundred or something as the market moves higher, you can continue to raise your stops. Right. And kind of lock in at least a portion of that profit. And then if it kind of turns and listen, this has been a gappy market too guy mm-hmm. right we're seeing overnight sort of moves too that's why the stops i think in the futures market make a lot of sense let's look at the nasdaq you just mentioned some of those kind of high flyers doing a a really hard turn today guy look at again here's a 10-day chart going back to the 14th you see that uptrend that's been in place maybe we see some support down there about 11,700 or so but if you go again to the chart going back to the start of 2020 you see that downtrend that's been in place it got rejected in late uh March at the 200-day moving average, it's sloping lower now. You see, you know, that channel here. Do we get back to 10,000? And again, yeah. I know you've been talking about those Apple earnings. We may see a pre-announcement before that. Look at the way semis are acting down 2% today. Despite your very good call on Qualcomm, it was a, a last call, final call on uh, Fast Money last week. You reiterated it yesterday. That thing is ripping a little bit. So again, I mean, the semis don't act great. Software doesn't act great here. The NASDAQ in general feels heavier than the S&P. Yeah, that's a really bad. We've we mentioned this dozens of times, the fact that this chart actually looks worse than the S&P 500. And this is doing nothing to sort of give me 
confidence that I'm going to be right in terms of that 4,100 in the S&P. This speaks to exactly what you're just saying. We're still in this downtrend range. And Carter spoke to this yesterday, and we're touching the upper band of what has been a pretty significant downtrend. And if you just sort of can do the continuation of that, one has to believe that we're going to do this meander down to that level that you you highlighted, that horizontal line that is effectively where we topped out if you go way back to March of 2020. It's really remarkable when you start to look at these charts. So we'll see. I think you make a great point. Maybe I'm maybe I'm too optimistic that it's the end of July. I mean, if Apple will come out prior to their earnings release in the form of some negative pre-announcement, I, I just don't think the market is set up for that right now. We'll see what happens. So Today, you know, it's one of those days, you know, you go through so many trading days that are sort of benign, not a big deal. You move on to the next day. This is one of those days that you sort of bookmark and say, okay, something changed today. And you have to sort of keep that in mind moving forward. And look, to your point earlier, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to dodge your question. I think what we've all come to realize is trading is fluid. You know, you can't, you have to have opinions, you have to have strong views, but you can't be dogmatic. And I know that might be sort of like a word garble there. It's not intended to be. There are two different things. So you want to have strong positions, strong views, but you can't be so entrenched in those that you don't change when the world changes well, around you. Come on, man. I mean, listen, you know, you and I grew up in this business on trading desks and, you know, people change their mind quite frequently as the information changes, as your whole feeling about what's going on. We all have different inputs that we use here. Um, so again, I, I think that, you know, let, let's not focus so much um, on what's coming from the cheap sheets here because we're just kind of trying to call it like we see it. This one was really interesting, guy. This was from Carl Quintanilla. You just mm-hmm. call him Q. Q. Um, this was, uh, you know, a little, um, he was just kind of aggregating some data from Goldman, how they're thinking about 2023 earnings. They're talking about, you know, margins that might have peaked. This is um, excluding financials and energy here. But listen, man, they are looking at 2023 EPS growth and they are saying that they could see that 10% expected Mm -hmm. growth going to zero. You and I have been saying that the 10% expected growth this year could go to zero. And let me tell you something, you can't have that happen in 2023 unless 2022 comes down a lot. And then at that point, if 2023 comes down for flat, then you have an opportunity where expectations might be low enough, where stocks might be discounting enough at the 10 year average PE of about 17. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's why this, what you just put up here, this quote and that graph illustrates what we've been talking about for quite some time. You know, the reason why I've been skeptical at some of these price targets for the S&P, the 5,000 price target that's been thrown out there by a couple of people, is like, how do you get there? How do you back up the math to get there? Again, you're basically looking at $250 of earnings in a 20 multiple environment, and neither one of them make a lot of sense. Um, 20 multiple is high in this environment without question. And there's no way earnings are going to come in anywhere close to 250. So the numbers just don't make sense. Now, what Goldman is saying here is exactly what we've been saying for a long time. The market is still too optimistic in terms of op- uh, earnings growth and, abs- and absolute earnings. It does not make any sense to me in this environment. And you just have to temper your expectations. These aren't bad things, by the way. That's part of the cycle. And I think it's a really important thing. I do think, and you've said it as well, I think it culminates somewhere between, I don't know, 3,200 and 3,400 in the S&P. I just thought we'd rally first. Now, am I being too cute again? Yeah, maybe, but that's the way I see this entire thing playing out. All right, let's talk about cute. This was cute on the opening today. Did you see Nike? You know, let, let, let's mm-hmm. talk about that quarter. We went through it last night on Fast Money, but again, you know, they gave um, 
the, 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 the results for the quarter just ended and they looked okay. The stock was trading up a few bucks and the stock heading into the print was down, I think, 40% from its highs, right? And Carter, you and I talked about it a little bit and he said it really matters on timeframes. He said over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, when you see Nike down 42% or so from its highs, if you have a two, three year time horizon, that's usually a good opportunity. But the quarter came out, stock was up. Guidance came out, looked really crappy. There was a high tech, you know, there was some some funky stuff with the tax rate. There was, um, you know, currency issues, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. I think we're going to hear a lot about constant currency. This is well, a lot of companies are going to try to present their results and their forward guidance here. But the stock rallied, okay, on the opening, was actually up, and now it turned lower. I think the high was like almost 114. Now it's trading at 105 or so. So talk to me about what you think happened there. What do you think you would extrapolate to other U.S. multinationals who have similar exposure to China, to the dollar, to supply chains, um, to inflationary pressures? Guy, what are we going to take away from this? Well, so the first, the, my takeaway immediately last night was, all right, the quarter was what it was. It wasn't extraordinary. There was not, but to me, it was the inventory build, 22.8% year-over-year inventory build against maybe 9% sales growth. And that just doesn't, it doesn't measure up in this environment. It's eerily reminiscent of what we heard from Target and Walmart and some other retailers. And what does it mean? Well, if you have a, if you have a glut of inventory, unless you have that subsequent demand, Margins are going to come under pressure, and that's what we're seeing. And I think in terms of what we saw with the stock, I think a lot of people said, well, wait a second. We just traded down to levels that was a prior all-time high, and I mentioned that last night, way back in 2020. Your horizontal lines illustrate exactly that. And I think people said, you know, here's an opportunity to get in the name. The market subsequently rallied this morning, and people felt good. When the market rolled over, I think people came to realize, wait a second, maybe there's concerns here. I'll say this. It's going to be a pretty big volume day. I think we've already seen north of 20 million shares in volume. Um, I think it typically trades 6 million or so a day. Now, you could potentially looking at a short-term capitulation in this name. And again, these levels start to make sense. And we talked about it last night. We've talked about it for a while. Even though in terms of their multiple, they're cheap in terms of what they've been historically to themselves, it's still a stock that's trading at 24 times next year's numbers. I mean, that's an expensive name in this environment. What I would say, and I really like your commentary um, on this uh, setup in Nike here. And so I guess the point is this, okay, if we're back to pre-pandemic highs, right, um, and we're back to a valuation that looks a bit better than when we were in a raging bull market before it. Now, the stock is down from what, 180 to 105 or so. Like how much worse would the results mm -hmm. have to be for the balance of the year for this stock to basically break down and get to, I don't know, 90 or something? They'd have to be really, really bad. I just don't think that's likely to happen. So to your point, if, you know, and I guess to the point we made about Carter is like, What's your time horizon here? If you're playing for a trade, then use your stops and, and pick a spot when you think it's oversold and, and have a target that's up 10 or 15% over a short period of time. If you're looking to leg into a U.S. multinational like this that has you know lots of leverage to pull you know with the global growth stories, it gets better post-pandemic, then ultimately say to yourself, I'm willing to buy it here at 105, buy a little bit more at 100, buy some more at 95, and then I've averaged into it. That's kind of the only way to do it. And I think this stock is probably looking increasingly attractive if you don't think the bottom is falling yeah. out of the global economy. And real quick, I mean, it's interesting that people point to the growth engine for Nike being China. And I understand. I mean, it's easy to point to China for the growth engine for so many companies out there. This is still, as Tim Seymour mentions, and I mentioned last night, it's still predominantly a North American story. I mean, you're talking about a company that 
obviously more than half of their revenues, I think it was over $5 billion this quarter, comes from North America. So the question to our earlier points about the consumer, you know, if the consumer slows here or stops on a dime, I mean, Nike's not going to be impervious to that. Yeah. So how much lower can it go? It can go lower. But to your earlier point, the point that Carter made last night, I mean, historically, if you have an opportunity at a name like this, given this sell-off and given this, in terms of them at least, you know, lower valuation, if you have a longer time horizon, I think this is where you start to layer in. And that's just the way you have to play these names, I think, going forward. Yeah, I mean, very clearly, that margin pressure had to do with inventories, had to do with some issues with supply chain, with China, that sort of thing. Those will likely get um, a bit better in the year to come. All right, Guy, really quickly, one of those major inputs on the inflationary front is crude oil. We've been talking about it, I think, seemingly every day um, on market call. And it was holding that uptrend like yeah. a boss. Um, you know, I listen, we have this kid, Stephen, working with us and, and Amanda. They're always reminding. No, me no, he's not day. a kid, Stephen. I think we should tell the audience who he is. He is he is uh, one of the top lacrosse oh. players in the United States. He was a finalist for I'll the. OK, I won't do no, it. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, listen, he was a great he was a, he was a very good lacrosse player, accomplished. He went to Syracuse University. That was my family's alma mater. I went there for a little bit. He was very good. Now he's playing in the pro league. So, I mean, let's just not give him too much here, guy. We got we still need him to help us out and create the, the rundown here. You know what I mean? But he says that I say these things, these these expressions quite frequently. And I said, you know, as the kids say, it was holding that uptrend like a boss. Wasn't it right? Good boss. It is now contending with that uptrend. Yeah. Thoughts on crude here because it seems like, you know, the stocks, the large integrated uh, measured by the XLE, the OIH, which is um, a lot of those drillers, they seem to kind of disconnect from the price on the way down. You know, crude was what down 10 or so percent. Those stocks dropped 25 percent in a straight line over the last few weeks. Talk to me about your thoughts here, because there's a lot of competing headlines with what the Biden administration might do, what Europe might do is buying, you know, gas and oil from Russia, a whole host of other things going on. Give us your your 411. Well, guys. look, I mean, the stocks have completely um, over, in my opinion, I mean, they've completely decoupled from the underlying commodity It's absolutely been a situation for the stocks, at least sell first, ask questions later. And we've talked about it on market call. And that's clear in some of the ETFs and some of the individual names. In terms of the commodity, as you mentioned, we broke that uptrend line without question, traded through it. Now we're back through the upside. This moving average is still sloping higher, this 200-day moving average. That is not rolled over. You know, I'm still of the belief that despite global slowdowns, crude oil still has some legs to it. And I know that doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense, but it really comes down to supply-demand fundamentals that have been in place long before Russia invaded Ukraine. So I'm going to try to stand by and continue to be bullish in crude oil and then subsequently the energy stocks, understanding um, how painful it's been on the downside for some of these individual names. I mean, you look at some of these names are down 35% over the course of eight or nine trading days, and that's extraordinary in this environment. Yeah, and I'll just say this, that my final call on market call or on uh, Fast Money last night after listening to you guys and talking to them, I think that um, that 70 level in the XLE looks like a really, you know, mm -hmm. attractive level if this thing comes in and it holds, you know, play for a, a bounce there. Because if you believe what you believe, Guy, about just kind of the demand for energy for the balance of this year, probably in some of the changing dynamics into next year, large integrated names should do pretty well. Let's hit some of the other industrial commodities. There's been lots of calls. It's, it seems like this is just on Wall Street. This is going to be the blood sport for the balance of the year, whether inflation peaked, right? And then, you know, to your point, how persistent and pesky some of these 
higher prices for really important inputs like metals and, and energy. Um, talk to me a little bit here, Guy, because, you know, again, we've been hearing about the ebbs and flows. You know, remember lumber last year, even wheat and stuff as it relates to food, that how they went up in these parabolic manners, but they've come in really hard. Look at what's gone on with copper here. And this is obviously, whether we're in an inflationary period or not, this is often one that macro um, traders, investors focus on Dr. Copper as they will. This sell-off is, is kind of important. It's kind of kind of hold that 350 level if we were to get down there. What, is it, what does the sell-off in copper mean to you? And where do you weigh in on the, that the kind most of peak inflation? I, you know, I think next to crude oil, I think this is the most important commodity in terms of global economies and growth or deceleration of said growth in the global economy. And this speaks to exactly that. You know, in retrospect, again, this a lot of the time you had that huge blow up in the nickel market we talked about on this a number of times in terms of what happened on the lme i mean i guess in retrospect it makes a lot of sense that they all sort of uh crescendoed at that point what is my take on this again i don't think the fundamental story is over um but the overshoot is extraordinary and you look at a name like freeport mcmoran i mean again these stocks which were everybody's love child in the fall into early this year have subsequently fallen off a cliff. I mean, that's a pretty stark move in a very short period of time. I mean, again, the stock's gone from 53 down to 30. You know, you can do that math. You're talking about a 40% move in a month, month and a half. I mean, it really is an extraordinary move. You know, I think we've become desensitized to some of these moves. You know, we talk about 30, 40% moves like they're nothing. That's significant, Dan. I think you would acknowledge that as well. We are at support the same way you found that support in the XLE. I would submit we may have found support in both copper and then obviously Freeport McMoran. Yeah, well, again, you know, with, in, in these fast markets, you know, single stocks, you can maybe play through calls, call spreads, sell put spreads, that sort of thing. That's one way to help kind of define your risk. And we're going to be speaking more and more, Guy, about options um, on market call as we go forward here. Um, we got to hit rates here because I think the 10-year, I know that we've spent a lot of time on the 210 spread. And again, we're, what, at seven bips. And you think that when we advert again, that won't be a particularly great for um, stocks or the economy or what it's saying about the economy. Let's go back to that 2018 high it was three and a quarter percent. And we know the stock market sold off very quickly um, after it kind of reached that level. You see the line that I drew. Um, I mean, we were above it, guy. We got to about three and a half in the 10 year yield. Now we're kind of below that. We're at 3.2. Um, this is a really important one here because, you know, we were talking about, okay, you and I both agree that, that yields could come in um, a bit. We don't think that's particularly great for stocks. But then if it were to break back out and go meaningfully above 3.5%, not great for stocks either. No. How are you thinking about 10-year yield? And then let's kind of take a little peek at the CME FedWatch tool and kind of see, you know, we know that we have a July Fed meeting, 75 basis point. Um, hike is is about an 80% probability right now. And then if we look at to September, you know, we're seeing more like along the lines of a 50. So give me your take on yields here. And how are we, how are we to think of them as we enter into Q3? Because when we started Q2, guy, the 10-year yield was at 2%, okay? Now we're above 3%. Yeah, so this is again, and hopefully there's some new audience members, but I'll say and reiterate to people that have watched for a while, you know, I think we find ourselves in an environment where rates go higher from here, that's negative for the equity market, because if rates go higher from here, it's not because the economy is going gangbusters, in my opinion, it's probably because inflation continues to be a problem. If rates were to go lower from here, it would be because the economy is slowing down and probably 
because the broader market is selling off and people are flocking to the bond market as a form of flight to quality. I think at these levels, I do think we're going to see two and three quarter percent in the 10 year for those reasons I just mentioned. I think slowing global economy is going to put some pressure here. A, sell, a market that sells off is probably going to find its way into a flight to quality in the bond market. But again, that's not going to be particularly bullish either because I don't think the two years going to budge. I mean, so I think you could see 10 year between 275 and 290 with the two years somewhere between three and 305. And you can do that math. That's a negative. Uh, it's an inverted yield curve. And that doesn't argue particularly well. So I think right now, at least rates going higher, negative rates going lower, unfortunately, negative as well. Yeah, here's another one that's been negative. It was negative for Microsoft when they pre-announced um, the quarter, and it was mm -hmm. negative for uh, Nike. You know, the U.S. dollar, you know, surging here, making a series of higher lows, a series of higher highs. We have a chart going back to the start of 2020. Um, we're above those kind of panic highs that we saw um, back then before the dollar started moving precipitously lower. Why? Because the Fed got really easy with their monetary policy, and that was a big part of it. Well, here, you know, they're obviously raising and we're seeing the dollar move higher so really keep an eye on the dollar and what companies have to say yeah. i'm just going to say it again we're going to have a lot of companies trying to convince you to think about things in constant currency but i have no reason to believe that unless the fed pivots and they start meaningfully you know lower interest rates that the dollar is going much lower especially with what's going on in europe we know that 50 percent of the dixie the u.s dollar index is the euro um, which is likely the eurozone in a recession here and then thoughts just real the quick I, i'm going to give you yeah, i'm going to give you real quick thoughts because we have a couple more things we want to get to what is mitigating inflation to a very small degree is the fact that the dollar has been rallying so at least your buying power is not yeah. also being deteriorated by a dollar that's been going lower now can you imagine this and and i'm not wishing for this but i'll just bring up this scenario a dollar that starts to go lower for whatever reason with inflation continuing to be strong i mean that is then the old double whammy and I think one of the reasons the dollar came off a wee bit over the last couple of weeks was that aforementioned rate hike by the Swiss National Bank and subsequent rate hikes by other central banks, seemingly, again, trying to get in line here. But to your point, the dollar seems to be getting back on its horse. It absolutely needs to be watched. And, and this I'm just going to throw out there. You're going to start hearing more and more people talk about the potential dramatic effect a continuing rallying dollar against the yen is going to have. You don't hear a lot of rumblings now, but mark my words, over the next few weeks, month, more and more people are going to start to be talking about the strength of the dollar against the yen. All right, fair enough. What does the dollar have to do, guy, to get your goal to get off the mat here? Because you look at this move that we've seen over the last year or so, it's it's basically hovering above this yeah. uptrend that's been in place, but you could also draw a very steep downtrend. You could draw a massive double top, right? Going back to 2020 and 2021. And then if you really wanted to look at the lows from 2018, there, there's some room to the downside here if we're a break. And I have to assume that this does have a lot to do with Fed policy and the dollar strength. You know, if you just look at this chart over the last two years, let's say, I mean, yeah. you're basically chasing your tail. We haven't gone yeah. anywhere. I mean, we've had some vast, obviously we had a huge move up in the summer of 2020. We had the subsequent huge move up earlier this year, but what, what's really happened? Nothing. We're right back where we started from at this sort of 1850 level. And that's not really doing anybody any good. I think gold bears are frustrated. I know gold bulls are frustrated. I still think there's a place for gold here. 
um, because I do think at a certain point the Fed's going to blink for whatever reason, and that's going to yeah. lead to, I think, a rally in gold and subsequently a rally in the next thing we're going to talk about. Right, in, in Bitcoin. And so, like, the question is, the bulls are not happy about this here. And we just drove some simple lines. This is the Bitcoin futures here. And again, I would just say for those like looking to trade Bitcoin, you see those kind of those legs lower and higher. I think using stops in the futures market is a really good way to kind of um, kind of express some views here. But 39, you know, 29,000, 30,000 guy to the upside. That was, you know, support in 2021. Uh, support earlier this year. We broke below it. We went straight to 20. We dipped below that a little bit. 20,000 is interesting because you got to go all the way back to 2017. That was the high there before it cracked. And that was the breakout in late 2020. I don't own this. I've been buying ETH. Um, I started um, last month at around 2100. I averaged down all the way below 1000. And again, it really does feel very heavy and it's waiting for some sort of pivot in um you know, Fed policy. But again, mm -hmm. that might not come, you know, uh, you know, before this thing is much lower. Yeah, look, I think that's I think right now, I think the fate of Bitcoin or crypto, I should say, lies in the hand of central banks globally, specifically our Federal Reserve. And I'll just say this on the way out again for any new audience members. It's not at all coincidental that Bitcoin topped out at sixty six thousand or so within a week of the Fed pivoting back in November of last year. So, you know, Bitcoin enjoyed seven, eight years of a very um, irresponsible central banks. And now the central banks are trying to get their houses in order. And again, I don't think it's coincidence that crypto has been seeing the dramatic move to the downside that you, we've seen. With all that said, if the largesse of central banks comes back, I think that's going to be the ticket for Bitcoin specifically to go not only to 66,000, the previous all time high, but significantly higher than that. Yeah. All right. Before we get out of here, guys, I just want to kind of <clears throat> hit this one more time. So we we're talking about the S&P 500. And today, I think it's catching a lot of people off guard right now as we're speaking. S&P futures are down one and a half percent. The Nasdaq is down two and a half percent. And again, um, you know, another gap lower tomorrow, mm -hmm. if we were to do that and continue, you know, then you get to that kind of last day or so of the quarter. The S&P 500 is down 15 percent on the quarter, guys. The Nasdaq is down 20 percent on the quarter. I, I guess the last question I'll just say is the lower we go in the quarter. Yeah. End, OK, might we bounce on the way out? And you also mentioned that holiday shortened week, too. But again, if I'm a company who has bad news to get out, guy. I might do, I think Danny Moses, our partner on On the Tape, he calls it, what does he call it, the Friday Night Dirty or something like that. Might you have Friday before July 4th weekend a little data dump, uh, pre-announcements, you know yeah. what I mean? And I don't know, just throwing it out No, there. you're going to see, somebody's going to do it without question. And I'm sure we will eviscerate whatever company does do it because <laughs> you know what? I mean, you're not fooling anybody. I, th I actually think it works to your detriment, but we'll yeah. see. But to your point, we've seen it before. We're going to, I'll bet money that we're going to see it again this Friday. Yeah, but real quickly, guy. I mean, again, if we were to follow through and close like very near the lows of the quarter, yeah. that that's not a bullish setup. No, you almost not, have to no. you almost you almost have to let things shake out, make new lows in the S and P five hundred, get some bad fundamental news out of the way, let the Fed get to that July meeting, right? And then maybe reset the stage because expectations need to get a bit lower before the stock market can bottom out. And I'll just say this, you know, my view very simply, we use this expression a lot, round tripping to the pre-pandemic highs. I really do think before all of this is said and done, this bear market, recession that's gonna come and whatever, 
comes in between, the S&P is going to round trip that move back towards 3,400, which also lines up with that chart that we had with that downtrend. That's just my take. That would be down 30% from the highs. But again, how we get there, your guess is as good as mine. My crystal ball gets foggy in times like this every every so often, guy. It's good to have a crystal ball, though. I'm going to give you my crystal ball going forward. At 54 and 20, the Yankees are on a pace to win probably 114 games, which is just a remarkable stretch of baseball. Yep. Uh, seemingly, again, just sort of going business-like, beating up their opponents on a daily and nightly basis, Dan Nathan. I know you've been locked into that. And as I mentioned last night, before the Stanley Cup playoffs, Mel turned to me and said, I'm not sure who they're going to play in the final, but the Avalanche will win the Cup in six. I mean, it's amazing what she does on the sports front. But that's it for Market Call, Dan. Uh, I want to thank our sponsor, CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. I think, by the way, that's one of the catchier phrases. I dig that. We are powered by Open Exchange. If you like this, if you enjoyed it, I don't know, like us on Twitter, send us an email. I think a lot of you folks have our email. Send us messages, whatever it is you need to do to correspond and let us know what we're doing well, or more importantly, what we're doing poorly. Dan and I will be back tomorrow, 1 p.m. Eastern time with the aforementioned Carter Braxton Worth of Worth charting. See you later. See you later, guy.